I heard a story last year, um, typical of a college campus. And in this situation, the students on the campus uh, conducted or held a walkout from class to protest the treatment and lack of attention to racial minority students, to students in LGBT community. And so the president of this college invited the students to a session to listen and to hear of the complaints. But the students boycotted this also. It was a typical situation, as I said. And when I first heard it, I was sarcastic or maybe upset with the students for having lost this opportunity to spell out their grievances. But the more time I thought about it, and especially as I thought of these passages this week, the logic of their position became convincing to me. There was a certain meaning and a certain um, point to their being able to hold the position they did. Well, let's step back from that because it introduces us to something very important about our culture today. It's a culture that has been described as a culture of competitive grievances or competitive victimhood. Now, it's so important to say at this point that there is injustice and there is oppression and there is growing inequality and there are things that simply must be protested and spoken about. The culture I'm talking about is very specific. It's the spirit, it's the psychology of blame and the triumphal attitudes that take place in our culture over the fall of a leader. There is a tendency in our culture to parade around at the fall of people, to point out the sins of others and to celebrate their loss and their accusation. Often a flag-waving kind of identity, look at me, point at the sins of others. And the church participates in this cycle. And the energy of guilt and blame and of triumphalism simply grows in its energy and fuels this sense of competition in terms of guilt and victimhood. And to me, this is where the logic of the students made sense. To go in and to reconcile in this culture is to give in. It's to lose your leverage. It's a costly move. And the logic should have some sympathy in our culture. But it brings to my attention, my largest concern here, is the degree to which and the ease that the church and Christians have participated in this culture. Running around finding specks in our neighbor's eye while there's a log in our own. Going about celebrating our enemy. The Proverbs say, when your enemy falls, do not rejoice. And when he stumbles, do not let your heart be lifted up. In other words, the Christian gospel about forgiveness and guilt has a totally different way of going about things. And the risk of our generation is to be drawn into the culture in its ways of handling fault. And our readings, I think, today draw us into a moment to refresh the doctrines of Christian grace and confession and forgiveness. So three brief points. The forgiveness of the Lord. The forgiveness of the Lord. Our passage today, this beautiful scene in the gospel, Peter approaches Jesus and says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my neighbor? Seven? Now it helps to know this is a matter of rabbinic debate. 
the rabbis would take up this kind of concern. Three times? Four? So you should appreciate the fact that Peter's offer is exceedingly generous. He's getting it. He's starting to pick up on the message of the unity of the church. But Jesus, in hearing this offer of generosity, blows it away. Seventy times seven. An absurd number. He sort of dismissed Peter's kind of accusation of hurt and guilt altogether. The real heart, of course, of the teaching is in this story of the king who has great empire and a servant is brought to him as he begins to settle his debts. And the man owed him 10,000 talents. Nobody smiled, so none of us are really into ancient um, uh, financial dealings, but 10,000 talents is an absolutely astronomical sum. No king would loan that amount. No king would probably have that amount. Thousands of years of wages is essentially what it adds up to. Billions of dollars. And you gave that much to a lowly servant. The writers, in fact, do say that. A, one of a, a great writer on Romans says this is a, a scandalous amount of money, or on a scholar of Matthew. It's um, astronomical in its limits that somebody would have that much and that a king who was owed that much would cancel it. And then that shocking story that we can anticipate is it's coming that a man that only owes him days of wages in denarii, he refuses to forgive. The gap between the get that's forgiven and the one that won't be forgiven is infinite. The psalm plays this out for us. He does not deal with us according to our iniquities, but according to his loving kindness. For as far as the east is from the west, as far as the heavens are above the earth, so far does he remove our sins from us. The whole nature of this pattern of forgiveness and grace in the church is built upon the exceeding goodness of the Lord's forgiveness. It's a doctrine that's largely lost in the Protestant tradition. If you were to go back and you're a reader, you can trace this from Ambrose and Richard St. Victor and Bonaventure and Dionysius into Calvin, who picks up on the fact that the primary way that God works with his world is not through debt and obligation, but through gift and generosity. Our world is evidence of the effusive goodness of the Lord. When God comes to settle our accounts, he's not a ledger man with an account book. He's a man of justice, a God of justice, who sees wrongs. But his solution to the wrongs is to blow the reality away into something altogether new. It's not like we have to wait to get to the Lord and think, was there enough merit for me to be there? 10,000 talents worth. An astronomical debt has been paid. A great, generous sum has been offered to forgive us and welcome us into the Father's presence that we may see him face to face. This is Matthew's culmination. He's gone above and beyond so that we may know him. The primary economy of the creation and of this universe is one of gift. And so that divine gift is what brings us into our human relations. Father, forgive us as we forgive our debtors. Our readings today correspond to this. Jesus says, and so also the Father will do to you, giving you to prison and tortures, unless you forgive your brother from your heart. 
There's meant to be a correlation. There's meant to be a response of ours that is akin, that an imitation to the Lord. But the mistake we make when we get lured in to this kind of pattern is to think of the forgiveness that I owe my neighbor as one of debt to God. Obligation. He's forgiven me, so you come to me, I have to forgive you. One writer puts it this way very well this week. This is not, as I said before, the result of an economy of obligation and guilt, but it is our own participation in the excess of the Lord's gift. I forgive my neighbor because I have been a benefactor of generosity. To forgive you and to forgive others, to ask for forgiveness, is to participate in that goodness. It's to enter into love. It's to put the record books away and to be welcomed in, into the mutual grace that the Father has spread plentifully among us if we will simply take advantage of it and participate. You see, the major reset this would make to our culture, the taking away of the way we orient to guilt and to offense and to regret, to abide in the loving kindness and the welcome of the Father. We are called to participate in that. There's a second side to that that I think it's important to mention that's not in our readings. But it's the way, maybe mysteriously to you, the church has always spoken of the sins of Adam and of Eve as having been reflected through the human race. You and I are born in Adam's sin, the same Paul tells us. Somehow I obtain and I inherit their guilt, which breaks the logic of the modern culture. The sins of racism, the sins of colonialism, the sins of the world wars, the sins of Jewish extermination are my sins, and they are your sins. To a different degree, of course, and in different circumstances. But the key point here in our Christian way of thinking about guilt is that we are in solidarity with one another. The goods the church does are ours, and its faults are ours. And so when we come before one another to say, forgive me, I have sinned against you, there's already a bond in the world. I have already hurt and you have hurt. And we recognize this common solidarity between us that neither of us can pull completely apart from one another in this web of sin and destruction that we have wrought on God's world. But freely entering into it because we know the gracious offer that's been given to us in Christ. We participate. We forgive our sins as we have been forgiven in mutuality and in compassion. It's that Jesus says, would you not have compassion on this servant as I did with you? It generates and wells up within us for we're like one another. It's all grounded in the divine goodness of the Lord. We forgive and forgive in response and participation. And third, we enter into Wisdom and peace and pardon. There is something obvious about when I mentioned this student's example at the beginning, and I think some of the um, motive of their logic. If I come in to reconcile with you having sinned against you, I will have to give something up. My wounds and my tears will not be healed. I will have scars. I have sat across from people again and again who refuse to forgive or reluctant to forgive, 
simply for this reason that they know to do so and walk out the room will not heal the hurt. The forgiveness doesn't happen. The sloganized forgive and forget. I will walk away and remember what we have done to one another. And so there is a real giving away here in the moment that our culture has hard to grasp. Why would I ever reconcile with you if I can't get back what I have lost? And it's real. And in that moment, Christians enter in. You'll hear it today, but in either morning prayer or in our service, when David or I pronounce an absolution on you, we pray for pardon and peace, for the consolation of the Holy Spirit. We ask the Lord God by his Spirit to come and mend and strengthen. We accept the fact that to walk through this journey of forgiveness is to walk into a place of vulnerability. And the Lord promises to give the power of the Spirit to help us and to gift us, to cover those wounds while we wait together for that one day where there'll be no scars and tears. Until then, friends, we live with one another in an age of pain and of forgiveness. It's why we're a people of hope, for we know that day will come and it builds up in us the strength to forgive. With pardon and peace comes wisdom. One of the things that I notice more and more, I talk about this with you, is that in the pattern of Christian sin and response, we forgive our sins, we feel guilty, we regret them, and then we do it again. And there is a pattern that's totally different in the Christian tradition and in Scripture. After I sin, I regret, I confess, and my burden is lifted and I turn and I reflect so that I may learn. Why did I turn in to that sin? Why am I so argumentative? Why does that person get on my nerves? Why am I so jealous for those goods? Why am I so desirous of this behavior? Sin has a moment of grace, a felicity, the church has called it, a happiness, that God can, in that moment, teach us something to make us better, to make us more strong and able and prudent to not act that way in the future. We can look on those moments in a way of growth. John Donne in his great poem, The Litany, says, come and recreate me, now grown ruinous. God will enter in. He can recreate and teach. I think I preached a sermon a couple of years ago about the Psalms. I was studying them at the time. And there's seven or eight or nine psalms that we call the penitential psalms, the psalms that are most explicitly that deal with confession. Against you only and you and you only have I sinned, the most famous Psalm 52, Psalm 6, Psalm 3, Psalm 25 often included, these psalms where we confess before the Lord. In virtually all of them, there are prayers for wisdom and instruction. The pattern's so clear, we don't have to revel in guilt. We can look back and grow. God has grace in those moments. What did you do wrong, and how could you do better? So that we don't have to simply carry the regret. God has already superintended our faults so that grace may come. We were talking in a group this week about Felix Kupa, the, the ancient saying, oh, happy grace, that in Adam and Eve's Wicked and unexcusable rebellion, grace came. 
that God pours out, our faults can never intrude upon his goodness. And so it is with joy and with gratitude that we enter into his divine welcome, asking him to nurture and heal us and make us forgiving and compassionate as he is. Amen.